at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello and welcome to Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello everyone, happy uh, pre-4th of July week. Yeah, it's usually a nice... I feel like where 4th of July falls this year, you get that nice Monday, so it, it not only creates a lull um, the week before, but the week after as well. Yeah, definitely a nice little nice little break for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, college football news never sleeps, um, and, and when you see the shenanigans going on in social media on a daily basis, I know uh, Michigan's thing today seemed to, uh, to take over for about an hour as, as Michigan... Harbaugh or not tends to uh, tends to do of late. Jim Harbaugh is a godsend, and I will not listen <laughs> to uh, any any disparaging comments about Jim Harbaugh, the the content savior. I, uh, I I can't blame you. This has actually been in good and bad ways. I think this has been one of the busier off seasons, which is weird because I feel like one of the prevailing opinions from a lot of people this off season has been how slow the whole thing and how kind of uneventful it's been and I agree it's been uneventful as far as like actual news but there's either been really bad news or there's been a lot of like little stupid like social media things that have actually helped I think keep us all sane yeah I mean I wish like some of the stories which relate to today's podcast which I don't think we're going to dive too far into uh weren't the stories that were carrying us through the off season but hey, um yeah hey Baylor uh didn't see you over there but you're there, unfortunately. Yeah, you guys have uh, a you team. have quarterbacks, so that's nice. You have a team for now. Yeah, you have a program that's in the Big 12 for, yeah. for the time being. For the time being. We'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. Um, if not from your awfulness, the uh, general uh, pains Jim, of realignment. Jim Delaney Armageddon. <laughs> um, yeah, so now that we've gotten our Baylor for you out of the way. Um, <laughs> that's one you were talking about. Oh, yeah, college football offseason. Uh, yeah, probably a little more exciting because like Jim Harbaugh gets in like one, you know, three day long Twitter fights with people, including Nick Saban and Kirby Smart, but then hosts camps with both of them and goes to Australia and Hawaii. And it's mostly just Jim Harbaugh. What jersey does he wear every day? I, that's been my favorite storyline of the offseason. Um, so again, like I thank Jim Harbaugh for all he's done. I would agree. Switching back to Syracuse, um, obviously we talked Syracuse football recruiting last week, um, but you know, not to be outdone, the weekend decided to uh, to give us even more news, and now um, you're starting to hear um, some national pundits talking about you know Syracuse is, is pulling together a pretty um, you know undercover like sneaky good class. We have a lot of really fast kids. Um, we've got four wide receivers in. I think there's just a lot of great momentum going into the dead period. Um, and, and a lot of guys who, you know, I think Babers and his staff did their homework before they got to SU on a lot of these guys. You're seeing a lot of, you know, bowl, existing Bowling Green offers on, on these 2017 kids. But, um, you know, these are kids that, that, that are not just, you know, system fits, but they're very, very good athletes. 
um, and, and to boot. And I think that that's all, you know, only going to help Babers' offense um, get off the ground quicker. Uh, Dan, was there any recruit that, that kind of stood out to you more than any others um, in, in a kind of flurry of, uh, of activity between maybe June 18th and, uh, and this past Sunday? Um, I'm really interested to see uh, what goes on with the uh, just how uh, I'm trying to think where this which one it is since we have all these receivers Cameron Jordan the uh, the one from Long Island uh, oh, yeah. from Half Hollow Hills West which is the same high school I believe as uh, Devontae McFarland um, he's obviously you know being a New York kid he's not going to have uh, the same type of attention paid to him I had a couple tweets about this um, right when he committed. Just based on, I think he's unranked in a couple of sites. I'm looking at 24/7. They have him as three-star. Um, they actually have him pretty high. They have him as our fourth highest-rated recruit. Um, but like with these kind of kids from from New York, like you're just not getting the attention. You're obviously even like if you're in Florida, even if you're a kid who doesn't start till he's a senior, you're going to all these camps and there's just all this stuff in your backyard. If you're in Long Island, like you have what eight games a year in New York high school football, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you have no spring football. Uh, your access to camps, like, I'm sure it's getting a little better now that all these schools are starting to do them all over the place. Um, but, like, really... Yeah, you don't have an FBS program. I mean, you don't even have, I mean, until recently, like, there really wasn't anything to talk about, even FCS-wise. Like, once Hofstra shut down, like, Stony Brook luckily rose at the same time Hofstra shut it down. But, yeah, you don't really have any kind of D1 attention being paid to the region. And I you know I said in the comments section... Um, on, on that commit article, I mean, I'm from Deer Park, right next door uh, to over in Dix Hills, and, and yeah, like that, that part of Long Island just doesn't really, and Long Island in general, just doesn't really create and, and generate that type of talent. I mean, you're only looking at a handful of kids um, in the last probably decade that have really uh, gone D1 from that area. Right. And, uh, and Sergio's done a couple of them. Um, <laughs> but he's an interesting prospect to me just because I think raw tools-wise, like, it's hard to, it's, he's super impressive. He sits for around 190, so he has good uh, D1 size to play the flanker in Baper's offense. And then you, you, you look, and he's running like 4-5-1 electric times, right? maybe even faster. Did he hit 4-4s in a couple of these? I thought uh, one, didn't he, was he the one that hit 4-3-5, or was that somebody I th- else? I think that was one of the smaller receivers. I think that was Nikeem Johnson. That um, but basically, we have the two big receivers and the two small receivers, and it kind of shows uh, where Syracuse is going with this offense. Like, you have the two flankers, you have the two slot guys, um, and you're going to see a lot of like these very defined roles, uh, which actually, you know, we've talked about it in the past. It actually works out based on how Syracuse's receivers are now, because you have uh, the classic. He's not as big, he's not it's four, but um, Steve Ishmael is like your classic outside, you know, one-on-one into the corner, beat him for, uh, for a jump ball receiver. And then you have guys like Grizzly and, and uh, Irv Phillips, who uh, are more slot guys, shiftier uh, to do a little more with them. Um, and we see, you know, two of base, basically two of each. You have Chairman Jordan and Josh Palmer, uh, who are both recent commits who are 6-4 and 6-3, and both still have really good speed. And then you have the two Blazers in Nikeem Johnson and Sherrod Johnson, um, both in their, like, uh, one's 5'11", one's 5'9". Um, but the interesting thing is it's just the, the overarching narrative in a lot of these recruits is uh, Babers is getting them as they're just starting to, to bloom. And obviously uh, Tommy DeVito is the, the easiest one to point to because he was – like a two, three-star kid when he, we got him, he was like the 120th-ranked quarterback in his class. And a lot of that's, I mean, he plays for Don Bosco, which is obviously the biggest, it's the name program in New Jersey. It might not be the best program every single year, but they're like, that's the program in New Jersey that everyone points to. Um, but they were very run-heavy last year. He only threw for 1,600 yards. Uh, there was a good article today in Bleacher Report um, about how he kind of like, they, they 
put uh, put some more on his shoulders like late in the season, and he won them. And I think a state title game. Uh, it was a big game down the stretch. I forget exactly what it was. Um, but you're, you're going to probably see him put a lot more, uh, do a lot more in terms of the you know stats this year. Uh, but those aren't always all that important in high school ball because you have very different systems and and they're you know catering to a fewer amount of kids. Uh, but then you know Syracuse lands Devito. Everyone was pretty happy with it. I think we all thought you know his tape was good. He you know had nice delivery. And then he goes and makes the Elite Eleven, and uh, all of a sudden you know. You have Max Jones, the Alabama team. It's like, yeah, I don't know if he's going to stay with Syracuse. Um, obviously, every, everyone, you know, uh, everything DeVito said so far has been great. So hopefully he does stick with it and he seems legitimately excited about the offense. But uh, Vito, you have Josh Palmer, who, you know, has played for St. Thomas Aquinas, bid, again, another power program. Um, I don't think uh, was one of their main options last year. So you're getting these kids who, for whatever reason, just have a missing piece in terms of becoming a big recruit as a junior. Uh, and we're getting in on them early. And even if we lose a couple, which is, is natural, that's probably going to happen just because it's recruiting. It happens every year. Um, when you go in on a kid early and you build that trust and you build that uh, – and they, they have uh, some sense of loyalty to you, you know, odds are you're going to be in it at the end. So that's all we can really ask. Um, and, and I think Babers has done a great job in identifying these kids early. And, then, and we've seen so many of them put up these big camps and these big uh, – have these big workouts and and it's it's really uh, encouraging because now like you said we've we've seen like two or three uh, articles in the last week or so about like oh wow Syracuse you know these aren't the biggest named kids but they're really putting together a really quality class yeah and I think that you know that's the key it's the it's the these are these are kids that are flying under the radar for one reason or another part of it's like what you said if they're kids in the northeast um, outside of New Jersey they're probably not you know getting the same fanfare uh, they're kids in Florida that you know, are hanging around the three-star spot, maybe haven't started as much as some of the, the higher four- and five-star guys. Um, the fact that we're kind of grouping these recruits together, too, I think it lends at least a little bit toward, um, you know, keeping this group together. I mean, you got a couple kids um, in the New York area, New York, New Jersey area, you got a couple kids in the Miami area, uh, got a couple kids near Ohio and Michigan. Like, no kids aren't going to base their entire uh, recruiting process and commitment process on, you know, oh, do they have somebody else near my region? But, I mean, we've seen this work before for Syracuse. It worked in the early parts of the Scott Schaefer era. It worked under Doug Marone. You know, it, having having a couple kids from Georgia in a class, you know, really helps kind of retain um, everybody. Having a couple kids from Florida or Miami in particular really helps, um, you know, keep that class together because they find a common bond early on. Um I'm not exactly sure where we were class-wise um, at this point last year, but I feel like we're at least at the same point, if not a little bit further along. And again, yeah, like these, we're we're not just locking up offers. We're not just lo- locking up any offer. I mean, we're, we're locking up kids that are, like you said, are, are rising and and are only going to get better offers um, as we go. And, and and again, the hope is that we can we can hold on to them, um, despite that. Yeah, and the other nice thing is compared to, and this isn't, you know, blasting Schaefer, but just is what it is. Um, and even under Marone, like, the offense wasn't, like, we, we kind of knew what it was, but it shifted so much even within just those two head coaching uh, tenures that it's hard to build uh, an identity uh, recruiting-wise when, you know, Marone had, what, three different offensive coordinators, or, or basically he was the offensive coordinator for a year, uh, and then Schaefer had two um, you just don't make it easy on yourself when you're constantly switching. Baber, as we know, if, if he fails, he's going to fail with the offense that he has. Or if he succeeds, same thing. So he's going out and getting the players that he knows fits this offense. It's not like, 
uh, you know, Babers is going to go make an offensive coordinator change in three years, and they're going to go to some heavy, run-heavy team. It, like, he's going to live, and, live or die by his system. And um, when you have that assurance in what works and what you know is your brand, you can go out and get, you know, these different kinds of wide receivers that you can identify that will plug in at these very specific positions. You know exactly what you want from your quarterback. And obviously, they went and got DeVito really early. They know he fits in. So um, they're, I, I think you can have way more uh, confidence in what you're getting out of these kids rather than, oh, I, you know, I hired George McDonald. He says he's going to do these things. And then two years later, you're cutting him, cutting him loose. And, and rightfully so. It didn't work out. But now you're, you, know, you have to change the entire uh, picture of what you're looking at with recruits versus you have a system, you know what it is, the recruits know what it is, and, and we've heard a lot from these guys about how they have been so impressed watching the Bowling Green film when they come up. Like, it, it's very easy to sell because the results are there for, for now four straight years uh, with Babers as a head coach at, at, uh, at his two different stops. Yeah, I, mean, I think you raise a great point, and like you said, it's not to... It's not to hammer Schaefer, but it's to point out that if you, if you have a proven, you know, selling point and a proven argument to, to recruits, it's it's much much easier to to say this offense isn't going to change as long as I'm here. You know, this is the system we have. These are the guys we have. This is how we're going to use them. For Schaefer, it was selling a concept, and that con- and, and selling that did work uh, for for some kids. I mean, some of the kids that are now going to be centerpieces of, of the Babers offense at work for. But I do think, and I know you agree, it's much easier to sell. Like, hey, look at what we do with Bowling Green. Look at what we do with Eastern Illinois. Hey, here's, you know, uh, Garoppolo's in, in the NFL. And, 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 you know, look at Matt Johnson. And, and look, look at these highlights and look at the film and, and look at these things that happened. Um, and, you know, as, as much as Schaefer did bring in some, some quality uh, recruits, and he did, um, for kids maybe like DeVito and maybe some of these other guys who were risers, it's not as easy to, for, for them to see the big picture, not because they can't do it themselves, it's just because Syracuse wasn't giving them the tools to do so. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the, the things that Babers has preached since he got here was, you know, asking fans to have faith in the offense. Um, and that works for the fans because, you know, you can only tell so many Syracuse fans like, oh, this guy, Coach at Bowling Green, was really good. Like those of us who follow college football on a grander scale understand that. But with the average fan, you know, they're not going to, like, go and take these MAC results with, uh, you know, they're not going to, to lean too heavily on them, I don't think. So I think that's important for them, but with, the, with these recruits and for the staff and Babers himself, like, he goes into the he goes into things with the mentality that I know this works. Like, I've lived it. It's worked uh, probably better than it has any right to through uh, four straight, you know, division titles uh, and then a MAC championship and a very good year for the MAC. Um, so while, you know, for those fans who – you know, may not understand what that means or what uh, Bowling Green was last year. I think faith is important. Um, but for recruits, like, you can just say, you know, we, we did this. Like, this isn't an idea or a concept or a theory. Like, this has worked uh, at the two levels right below where we are now. And, you know, we've obviously seen uh, where this uh, football-wise, obviously, if this comes directly from the Arp Riles-Baylor offense, it worked there in the Big 12. Um, and we have a dome, and we have uh, all these recruiting grounds that we know we're hitting hard, uh, where we can get these athletes from. So um, I have no. I, it doesn't surprise me that t- Baylor, uh, that not Baylor, Jesus, that Baylor <laughs> is able to go into living rooms and be very confident and get some kids to buy in early, um, even before his first game at Syracuse. Just because he has he has a lot to sell, and he was a, a he's a pretty proven commodity, which is is very nice to have because we haven't had it in a while at Syracuse. I certainly agree. Um... 
Moving on a little bit from players that could be on campus to players that are on campus. Um, I know today, and for listeners yesterday, we, uh, we chatted about um, Syracuse's running back situation a little bit. Um, Dan, I did allude in that article. I know a lot of people feel the same way. Like, while we're not going to complain and, 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 you know, raise hellfire over it, there's still a little bit of a thought that Herb Phillips might be better suited here, but nonetheless, um, we have at least three, if not four, capable running backs right now. Um, I know Dante Strickland's listed as number one. Dan, to you, do you feel like he's going to go into the season as the number one back? Do you think that Fredericks is going to retake it, or do you think it really doesn't matter? Both are probably going to get, you know, 15 carries or so a game. Um, I trust them with the Strickland thing. I mean, Strickland was really impressive in limited touches last year. Um, I kind of wish we had gotten him more. Uh, he was super explosive. He was obviously a big recruit coming in. He was one of the top uh, top playmakers in New Jersey. Um, so I'm all for him being the number one guy if he is the guy that Babers feels like fits the offense best. I hope that we see Fredericks kind of break out. Like he had a, it seems like a weird off season. Maybe you know took a step back. Um, but as we saw at Bowling Green, there's room for two uh, distinct runners. And they just seem to complement each other well. Uh, and like you said, I, I was, I and still am, like based on what we've seen for two years, I thought Earl Phillips was way better at running back than he was at receiver. Um, his his hands are an issue, uh, but I also think that you need to get him the ball. So rather, I mean, if they think that there's more opportunity for him to make an impact uh, split out wide uh, than they do with Strickland and Fredericks and obviously Mo Neal, who's a very dynamic player in the backfield, then I, I think that's the most important thing. So uh, we'll see. Uh, I, I obviously spent the first however many minutes of this podcast praising Dino Baber's offensive acumen, so I'm not going to pretend like I know more than he does when it comes to where Earl Phillips should be playing. But I do agree that, like, based on the first two seasons, I was always more impressed with Irv from the backfield than I was when he was split out wide. Yeah, and you know what? I, I think you brought up a good point there, and this is something that was even a holdover from... Uh, I think, you know, Lester's lone year um, as offense coordinator is the, like, you know, putting the, the best athletes on the field at all times and just making sure you can put as much speed as possible out there. Um, and, yeah, if if all you need to do to have Irv, Ishmael, Strickland, and potentially, uh, you know, Neil or Fredericks all out there at the same time is move Phillips to, to wide receiver, I think it's a no-brainer. Right, and you just—I mean, this offense. Obviously, there's—they need—they uh, need receivers. Um, obviously, we both like Ishmael, we both like Grizzly, uh, but um, all the other guys, for better or worse, are are pretty unproven. Uh, and a lot of that, I think, we all have gripes with the previous staff uh, not allowing them to get proven, especially when things look very bleak the last two years. Um, you know, but uh, I think you need to have playmakers that you know can dependably. Uh, get yards and make plays. So um, Irv is obviously one of those. And, and if this is better for him uh, productivity wise, let's um, I'm cool with it. And, you know, they obviously can, they obviously can always move him back to, to running back if it doesn't work out. So completely, I'm all uh, for getting the best players in the field. So, and this seems like uh, numbers wise, it seems to make sense. Right. So I guess um, from your perspective, what do you think the ceiling is on, on, on Mo Neal? I mean, because we only have four running backs, because Joel Shaw is not going to be on campus um, at all this fall, um, it seems very likely that, that Neil's not going to be redshirting and that he's going to be plugged in pretty quickly. Um, but we, I guess, w- what do you think is the ceiling for, for what he can do and how much time he can see the field? Um, it's hard to know. I, I mean, he was 
like a really legitimately uh, big time recruit. I mean, he wasn't, you know, if you get hundred but stars, he wasn't a four star. He wasn't what we thought Robert Washington was before Robert Washington ended up being a Charlotte 49er. Um, but he's a really nice player. He's dynamic. He put up just huge numbers in a, a pretty good football state down in North Carolina. I mean, that's where like Todd Gurley came from. So, and, and he was putting up comparable things. So uh, I'm interested to see where he slides in. Cause he's very different. Like, uh, uh, Strickland is more of like, he's, he's a, not a, not like a big back in terms of like what Fredericks is. It's like a bruiser, but he's still, I think he's like six feet. He's a little more, uh, like mid sized. Um, where Neil is, is smaller, shiftier. Um, but we also saw last year at Bowling Green, like they have room for three running. Uh, they, they, they gave touches to, to three guys, Donovan Wilson, the 36 touches, uh, and seven touchdowns. I think it, I assume just looking at his numbers, he was more of like a goal back. But then you had Travis Green and Fred Coppett. So, there was definitely room for three guys, even if two kind of commanded more. Um, and I think if Neil if Neil proves that he can can play this year, I don't see why they wouldn't use him. And it definitely sounds like that's the plan as of now, based on uh, what Babers has said about him and, and how he looked in the spring, apparently. Agreed. Yeah, I, I think what what Neil seems to deliver is, is, a, is a solid mix of the best of Fredericks, which I think is his explosiveness um, at the hole. And, you know, I, I think... Strickland, who really has a great, you know, ton of speed once he's running with the ball. Uh, it seems like Neil possesses both of that, obviously, you know, without the same amount of playing time and experience. But if Neil can deliver on, on that combination of things, I, I think we're in for a, for a treat um, in terms of what we're going to see. Even if it doesn't come to full fruition this year, I think in the next couple of years, um, you know, Neil could really become a, a breakout player. Yeah, and I think it also helps that he was he got to campus early, um, and it was oh, obviously that's huge. Yeah, I mean that's such a game changer, especially for that first year. You're just getting the playbook that early because you can you know get it in the mail and look at it, but you're not really digesting that thing. Oh, I, actually, I amend this. There is no playbook. Um, just <laughs> so you definitely need to be on campus. <laughs> you definitely need to be on campus because it's not anywhere else. Um, just being there and living with the steam for that extra month of practices and having the coaches around and be able to pick their brain is just such a big thing. Well, Playbook the players or not. Too, and the tendency is like... Exactly. I mean, especially if you're, if you're taking handoffs from a quarterback, you're receiving passes from a quarterback in particular. It's, you know, it, it's not like other positions where, yes, you're reacting to them and you're responding to them, but like for quarterbacks, it, it's, you're picking up certain ticks, certain cues, certain signs, um, and, and, and that goes both ways for the quarterback and, and the running backs and receivers. And it, it is just such a huge deal. Um, for him to be able to show up early. And, you know, if we start, I mean, yeah, not to get back into 2017 recruiting, but we'll see, you know, kind of who, who's thinking early, early uh, enrollment for 2017. I think it's going to be a, a huge indicator of, you know, who gets playing time first. Because I feel like Babers, there are no sacred cows. There are no guys who's looking to, you know, protect in their later years in the program. I think he's just going to play the best guys. And if so, yeah, if there's, if there's new recruits that are better fits for the system and can learn quickly, I think they'll be in. Yeah, and it also helps that, I mean, going along with what you just said, um, him coming in the spring, because there's a new system, like, he's not really behind in that regard. Like, he's behind in, you know, just being a freshman and not having, you know, years of college training and not getting uh, the Will Hicks special for a few years, um, which maybe for Babers that isn't being behind now. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that the players that have been on campus in any system are more physically, physically developed than Moniel is coming from uh, North Carolina, but uh, system-wise, I mean, he's right there at ground zero with everyone else, so I, I think if he 
proves that he can run the ball this year. He's there's no reason for him not to. Um, and I'm excited because uh, all the all the early indications that he's been very impressive. Co-signed. Um, I guess before we hit halftime, I uh, just want to talk about uh, some of the uh, road trip options for this year. I know um, Syracuse fans Texan Mark, the uh, SU tailgating guru, was uh, was nice enough to kind of come on to a guest post for us and just talk about um, you know the top six road trips for Syracuse and you know he used his own kind of metric system. Um, I had a couple differing thoughts. Um, I know Mark went with Wake Forest as his top pick. I said mine are probably between BC and Clemson. Dan, you usually end up at at least one road game. What's uh, what's your top pick? Um, you know, not obviously going with Wake Forest since I know you'll be headed there just based on circumstance with family. Yeah, I'll be at the Wake Forest game and I'll be hopefully at the Notre Dame game and I'll be at the first two home games. Um, so actually, it's a pretty good year for me. Uh, I would say it depends on what you're looking for. I think Mark in his thing, and Mark also, by the way, like one of the nicest guys ever. I've met him a number of times. Uh, so if you go down for one of the Syracuse fan tailgates, say what up to Mark. He's great. Um, I think for him, like he puts a lot of weight on like winning the game, which for a Syracuse fan is tricky because that is never <laughs> a guarantee. Um, but that is where the Wake thing, like with Wake, you, I mean, they're they're talking a big game this off season, but you feel pretty good that at the very least uh, you'll have a good shot of winning. Uh, I think BC is t- kind of similar. Like you're not getting a huge campus atmosphere there. Um, BC, you're definitely not. Wake, like there's some people in the stands. Uh, they have like the the doofy mascots running around and whatnot. Um, but it's not like an overwhelming campus atmosphere. You're not even on campus. Yeah, well, in <laughs> well, Wake you kind of are. You're, all, you're like you're campus adjacent. It's like yeah. if you were. It's like if, if the dome was. Uh, it's like if the dome was where like that graveyard is right next to campus. There you um, go. Yeah, you're you're close. Uh, I would say otherwise. I and mean, the one I really want to go to in the next couple of years is Clemson. Obviously, we have some some fraught history with Clemson, uh, but I assume that. Um, for the most part, most Clemson fans don't like on there aren't like super into the uh, weird cultural internet. Um, and all I've heard otherwise that Clemson fans at their games are like super nice and, and accommodating and welcoming, and hopefully not booing our players every time they're injured. Um, <laughs> but apparently that that atmosphere is unreal. Uh, so I definitely want to hit that up at some point soon. So that'd be my pick if I if I was choosing an extra game and wasn't going to the Wake Forest game or got to go to an additional one, which is hard because I work every Saturday because college football. Um, that would be it for me. And that's where you just kind of put like, you know, oh, we might win this aside and just kind of enjoy the rush of being at a game like that, at a stadium like that. Um, if you really just want to see Syracuse win, then I think Wake or BC is probably your best bet. Yeah, I'd agree. I think at the end, like, you know, both of us have been to Wake already. It's fine. It's, they sell beer at the stadium. That's yep, and uh, it, like they sell, you're in like one very small spot of the stadium, yeah. like this one tent, just, just one. Is they called like what is it, like the Top Hat Tavern or some shit? Yeah, it wasn't really a tavern. It was like a, it was a canopy. Um, <laughs> they had like foothills and stuff though. It wasn't bad, right? They had they had some decent. Yeah, well, fo- yeah. I mean, like they can have local stuff, and they, there's some great local options in that area, obviously. Um, yeah, I, I'd say if you're looking for wins, BC or Wake. I'd go BC only because I've already been to Wake. Um, if you're looking for best game day atmosphere, I think it's Clemson this year for sure. Um, and I think it's actually not even close if you look at the other options. <laughs> uh, I will say uh, um, I've been to games at UConn, 
and the rent is no, it's not exactly the prettiest uh, place to watch a game. But for whatever reason, like just they strangely have a really, really good tailgating setup. So if that's your main objective and you're in the Northeast and want to just drive somewhere, um, you'll probably be able to throw a better tailgate at UConn than you will at BC. Pause um, and, and we still, at Pause Arf. And we still might win that game. Uh, I mean, uh, UConn was pretty good last year. Who knows what will be this year. Um, but that's not a bad option either. Uh, just uh, enjoy East Hartford. It's, it's, it's uh, a town in UConn. It's a town in it's, it's not that exciting. You're not doing anything else if you're going to East Hartford. You're going to the game and hopefully throwing a fun before and after tailgate. Yeah, this year is actually slim pickings in terms of road games. You know, next year is much better. Um, it's Louisville, NC State. Um, what else is on there? Florida State, uh, LSU. Um, oh, that's right. Our schedule's not done yet. <laughs> Makes it very difficult, Syracuse. Have we discussed this before? I, I don't. Think Our so. schedule really isn't done. Have we talked about this? I, I, I don't <laughs> think we have. Funny enough, tomorrow slash today, for those listening, I'm gonna have another article talking shit. Oh. With all the numbers that I crunched yesterday, this is this is a teaser, everybody. All it's those what numbers. Us and us in Florida State uh, that need to right, and we can't play them because we already played that. Yeah, and oh, by the way, like and just playing them if we didn't have to would be ridiculous. We would though, if Dr. Oh, Gross totally is still would. in charge. If Dr. Gross is still in charge, like this is Miami adjacent. We got this. He'd be trying to schedule a Miami non-conference. <laughs> we joke, but we know this is true because he already tried this. Yeah, he actually did. No, we uh, SU and Florida State are, are the are the two most poorly prepared 2017 schools. And then, as I'll note in the article, and I know I noted to, to you and others on Slack, um, Arkansas is the only team in the country less prepared for the next eight years than us. And they, and they still have three games scheduled for next year already, so that means the other game's going to be an FCS, so they're done. Yeah, and Arkansas, like, we know they're going to drop three of their first four and then win out anyway. Like, we all know. It doesn't matter who they play. Yeah, exactly. Like, you could... The, yeah, so, so you, to be honest, you might as well... Um, you know, either schedule those scrubs at the beginning or, you know, pick up some nice quality losses, get get an Alabama, LSU, Ole Miss, maybe for those first three? Um, yeah, I mean, if you're Arkansas, you could schedule Texas Tech, you could schedule Toledo, it doesn't matter. Like, you know how it's going in September, and then you go and you put up a fight against Alabama, and uh, you randomly beat, like, Ole Miss, and... Uh, I feel like Arkansas is basically like, it's like the Drownhogs Day. Which actually, that's even, I mean, Drownhogs and, and Razorbacks aren't quite the same. Not um, at all, but whatever. But no, they're different. They're very different animals. Uh, it's, it's a ground like Dash Hogs Day, I guess, of college football at this point. Yeah, I'd buy that. Um, all right, getting to, uh, getting to halftime. Dan, what have you been drinking? Uh, I didn't have that many new things this weekend, but the new things I did have were of pretty high quality. Actually, one of them wasn't new, but I've only had it like once before. Uh, pretty high quality, though. I had Edward from Hill Farmstead Brewing up in Vermont, which is obviously one of the better breweries out here, out in the Northeast. Um, anyway, really. Yeah, they're just really good. Everything I've had from Hill Farmstead is fantastic. Uh, I've had this once before, and I saw it again. It's still, it seems to be popping up at a lot of like the, the really good beer bars around here. Uh, a lot of their stuff is... Uh, so that's really delicious. Um, and then I had the Molotov Light uh, Double... I like that their light is a double IPA uh, by Evil Twin. Because <laughs> um, I think the regular Molotov's a triple. Um, 
this was uh, really good, really drinkable for a double. Um, like just really nice, subtly malty flavor, um, and the hops, you know, weren't too weren't too crazy for a double. It was absolutely like I was surprised by how drinkable it was. Um, Evil Twin, obviously, we talked about them a decent amount. Like they're one of the more interesting breweries I think out this way. Uh, they do really really bold things, um, but generally I think it worked out pretty well, and this was uh, no exception. Awesome. Uh, on my end, um, I drank a bunch. I was at the uh, Beer Camp Across America uh, Festival down in Long Beach over the weekend. Uh, before I got there, I had uh, stuff from the brewery, had Humulus Rye, um, just kind of their uh, you know pale rye lager. It's pretty good. Had a Jurassic Goza. It was made with uh, Libertine Brewing, um, and it was a whole bunch going on here. Um, it was aged in port barrels. Uh, they added some Shannon Blanc grapes, uh, just yeah, a whole lot going on. Had a had a nice kind of not sour, but like a, a kind of wild ale funk to it. Uh, I definitely enjoyed that one. Um, got to check out some stuff from the Rare Barrel over uh, over at the beer camp event. Um, had Forces Unseen and, and Sorcelled. Had um, Bonkers IPA from Highland Park Brewing um, around here, which might be um, one of the better IPAs in LA. So I had thank you for being a friend uh, from Noble Ale Works. Uh, really, really good um, double IPA that they put out um, in the last couple weeks. Had uh, Autumn Bliss uh, barrel aged sour with raspberries from Toolbox Brewing. Um, pretty sure half the enamel on my teeth is gone after that one. Really, really tart sour. Um, had a bunch of the. Uh, for some reason, I didn't bother getting the uh, beer camp box this year, so I just tried a bunch of them when I was at the uh, at the event. So I'd say if you still if there's still some beer camp boxes around, maybe check out some of those. Though the IPAs are probably on their way out um, since they've been on the shelf for a couple months. Um, had an IPA from Society Brewing down in San Diego, uh, The Bachelor. Um, had a Frambois de Amorosa from the Lost Abbey. Uh, really, really good beer. Probably one of my favorites at the event. Um, and what else did I have? Sorry, I'm scrolling through on tap. I want to make sure I get everything. Um, Oh, and then I closed out my weekend with uh, Other Half's Table Beer. Um, it's kind of a wild ale uh, from, again, Other Half. Uh, Aaron sent that over. Um, and then drank some Eau de Tarte with cherries uh, from the brewery to, to cap off the weekend. Very nice. Yeah, it was a good one. I'll, uh, I'll have plenty. Well, actually, I won't have that much to report this coming week. And then we'll have a two-week break. And I'll be in Europe, and I'll have plenty to report once again. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. So it's time for the Big 12. Um, we obviously already did our Baylor preview, so that's done. <laughs> it was very detailed and thorough. <laughs> very thorough. Uh, let's talk about the frogs. I, uh, I, I checked out the, uh, the frogs' digs a couple months ago and uh, liked it. Like what I saw. I, uh, I always enjoy TCU. I think they're... Uh, I don't love Nouveau Riche fan bases, but TCU isn't a Nouveau Riche fan base. They're like a once, once Riche and then not at all, and now they're back fan base. So I, I actually appreciate them a lot. Um, and I got the Frogs as my Big 12 winner right now, but Dan, feel free to tell me I'm wrong. Uh, I think you're wrong. Fine. Um, I don't think you're. I don't think it's like crazy because t- TCU has probably one of the five to ten best coaches in college football. Um, 
actually, you know, with one of the other ones currently indisposed, I think maybe he bumps in there, uh, which would be, you know, I know they're totally not rivals, you guys, but I think TCU would appreciate Gary Patterson moving into the top five coaches in college football. Do we want to run through this real quick? It's Saban and Meyer, 100%. Yeah. I think I think you have to put Harbaugh there. Uh, not not a three, but I'll put it. I'm, not, no, no, I'm just saying in the top five. Yeah. Um, I would have put Riles there, but he's not coaching currently, and maybe never again. Um, I wouldn't have put Riles so, there because I'm a troll. <laughs> okay, well, as long as we're being honest. Um, do you put D'Antonio? Yes. I think D'Antonio is, is, is probably three. And then, and then there's a pretty solid case to be made for a bunch of guys at four. Um, Jimbo, Les, I think David Jimbo Shaw. and Dabo, I think, both need to be in the conversation. I think Dabo is a better case to be in the conversation than Les, Shaw, and Jimbo. I agree. I think Shaw is closer than Les. I think Les is less. I love Les Miles for a lot of reasons. Um, not been that impressive in the last couple of years. Also, uh, with, not that I think with he's an NFL fired, raft of talent every year. With an NFL raft of talent, and he just refuses to modernize the offense. Even when he almost got fired, Cam Cameron's back, baby. <laughs> so, and hasn't had a quarterback in forever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Patterson has to be in that conversation at this point. Like, that's he's right there. Yeah, I, I think I think your top four is pretty not, not ironclad, ironclad, but I think. You'd find very few qualms with that top four. I struggle to, yeah. I mean, you can argue it a lot. Like, you can argue Dabo, you can argue, Jim, argue Jimbo. Uh, you can do a lot of stuff there. But I, I think if you have a conversation of top five coaches, you can't totally dismiss Gary Patterson. He's done an unbelievable job at TCU. Even before he was in the Big 12, had, like, that one rocky 4-8 and eight year where if you actually look at, like, the advanced numbers, they were, like, 4-8 and eight going on 9-3. and three. It was, like, one of those super stupid years where their defense was, like, top 20 and their offense just kept on shooting itself in the foot and they ended up with, like, these really awful close losses. Um, and then they turned it around and almost went undefeated the year after. So it wasn't like it wasn't like they were that far behind. Um, and then, you know, the, the way the way they've responded by since joining the Big 12 after that awful year, I mean, they've been awesome. And... Uh, they obviously have to replace their quarterback. Trevon Boykin was very good. Um, but they've recruited quite well. Uh, they're recruiting at like a top 25 level since they joined the Big 12. They have uh, Kenny Trill coming back after his uh, brief Heisman campaign a couple of years ago, which I was, I was at the debut of. And it was one of the most thorough throttlings of a team that wasn't named Syracuse I've ever, I've ever been at um, in so South Carolina. It was... My friends were so excited. I have a bunch of, I, we've talked about this before. I have a ton of friends down at the University of South Carolina. A lot of them still live down there. So I went down. I've been down to a couple of games. This is like the first SEC, SEC game I've been to. And they were so excited. They had Dylan Thompson, Spurrier, you know, I just had, basically in the middle of like his best run in South Carolina ever. And they were very excited. They thought they were going to be like a top 10 team again. And they just got waxed. And Kenny Hill completed like, 99.8% of his passes for 400 yards and five touchdowns or something crazy. And uh, just an absolute demolishing of what was thought to be a pretty good team. And they ended up not being very good. Um, but yeah, so he, I think he's the favorite to win that job um, just based on his experience. And even if you like really soured on him based on how his A&M uh, career ended up, you have to assume after a year at TCU, uh, he's a pretty decent option. 
Uh, and they have just a ton of speed. This is just a super fast athletic team. Uh, they lose Josh Doxson. They lose Colby Listenby, who were two total burners. Doxson was one of the best receivers in college football. Uh, but they bring back a lot of production of, uh, otherwise. And you have to assume at this point with TCU, like they're going to plug and play. I don't think they're going to be the Big 12 champs. I'm riding with Oklahoma until further notice. Uh, and who knows what, what Baylor's going to be. Uh, they're kind of the wild card now. Um, but I think that this is a, you know, this should be a team fighting for second or third. They could obviously win it. Uh, and they're probably going to be right around 10 wins, if not more. Yeah, I, I can I can peg TCU at 10 or 11. Um, I, I know I'm kind of taking a cue from Bill Connolly here. If you take a look at, um, you know, he said in his preview, uh, the big thing with TCU is that last year's injuries really allowed a lot of guys to get playing time and a lot of guys to jump in where they might not have otherwise. So while they look young as hell, they're also experienced. Um, I, I think even if TCU falls to like a 9-3-ish season this year, I think they're primed to potentially go undefeated next season. Yeah, I mean, that, that's you're totally right on that. They have a lot of guys who, I mean, next year they'll be one of those like stacked teams that doesn't lose anyone, assuming you don't have like weird breakouts and NFL departures. Um, but even this year, like, look at that, look at their linebacking core. They're all back, and they're like half of them are sophomores. Uh, their defensive line, their their top guys are all back. Like, this is uh, a really impressive group. And Patterson defenses um, last year, obviously they were they had some issues, but being in the Big Twelve kind of makes things seem worse than they are a lot of the time, just based on how. Uh, the offenses work. Hey, the Mets just hit a garbage home run. That doesn't matter. Um, yeah, they're going to lose after they were being one hit for most of the damn fun. Uh, <laughs> it's been rough. It's been rough in Mets land early this season. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm, TCU's in a very good position going forward. Uh, I'm interested. Like, we were just making fun of Arkansas. I actually forgot they were playing Arkansas in week two. Lulz. That should be actually a really fun one. I actually, I want to. That, that's probably one of the only, if not the only, game. Um, as you know, I do some pretty detailed predictions before my seasons, including the college game day sites um, every week. And TCU Arkansas got my week two, I believe. Uh, they've already based. Um, sorry to burst your bubble. Uh, apparently, the people at Bristol Speedway are pretty sure they're getting it for the Tennessee uh, Virginia Tech game. That's probably fair, even though it's not going to be a good game. <laughs> if, unless Fuente is like a, a magic worker, it probably won't be a good game, or if Tennessee is just not as good as everyone thinks. Uh, but I get like why they would choose that. That's a really crazy thing they're doing. The only so. way they don't is if both teams lose in week one. Yeah, I buy that. Well, yeah, I guess they choose it, you know, unless they announce it beforehand and they just get burned. Um, but yeah, Arkansas TC is like one of those super, like, not obvious, uh, but still makes a lot of sense. Um, non-conference games that I like, kind of wish we saw more of uh, in non non-Syracuse schedules. Yeah, you know what? Texas Tech gets plugged into a lot of those sensible ones, though. Like the Arizona school schedule them a bunch. Um, I know uh, some of the former Big 12 schools schedule them a bunch. Um, they played Arkansas last year, and Cliff Kingsbury will tell you all about it if you ask him. Yeah, and any of the Southwest Conference <laughs> teams do. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot to like with Texas Tech. I think TCU is, is a team that could plug itself in there. And TCU doesn't have a ton locked up in its future schedule, so yeah, but, but you could definitely start seeing them um, in, in more series like this, especially because the SEC, which is nearby, um, you know, has has a bunch of openings in the future as well. Um, Dan, I, I know that you uh, favor Oklahoma in the, uh, the Frogs versus Sooners. Who's going to win this conference uh, conversation? So I guess state your uh, state your case for the Sooners. Um, 
I trust quarterbacks who are good. And TCU, we don't really know what we're getting uh, with Kenny Hill. I think he'll be good. I, I feel pretty good about that if he starts. Um, but I know Baker Mayfield's good. Uh, he was one of the three, maybe two best quarterbacks in, in college football last year. He's basically he's basically he's, he's basically everything you want in a quarterback. Um, obviously, there've been like weird Johnny Manziel comparisons that are probably a little off, uh, especially off the field. But it doesn't seem like Mayfield has nearly uh, the interesting social life, we'll say, um, and probably a better relationship with his father. Um, but he's just so it was so dynamic last year. Uh, I'm very glad that he got his year of eligibility back. That was absolute horseshit that he wasn't going to. Um, and they were just so dynamic last year. And obviously they learn, they lose a fair amount, especially at receiver uh, with uh, Sterling Shepard. But they are uh, he's bolstered by a running game that should be really ridiculous again. Admittedly, yeah, Ryan, one of the best in the country. Yeah, I mean, Samaje P. Ryan had, like, a disappointing 2000. My computer's being very slow, so I'm trying to scroll down to his stats. He had, like, a weirdly disappointing, especially first half last year, and he ended up with... Um, 1,400 yards and 16 touchdowns. There we go. Uh, my computer is being ridiculous and will not let me scroll up now after I got past it. And then they have Joe Mixon, who I know uh, a lot of us on the staff have personal issues with the fact that he plays, but football-wise... Um, he's a super dynamic uh, foil for Pirine. Um, unbelievably fast and just a absurd playmaker uh, that fell on their lap after a lot of off-field incident issues. Um, and then receiving-wise, uh, losing Shepard, who was one of the more productive receivers, is tough. But they bring back D.D. Westbrook, who was a very nice second receiver. He had 46 catches, 740 yards last year. Uh, Geno Lewis, nice player. Um, Mixon makes a lot of nice plays out of the backfield. So, uh, losing Shepard and Deron Neal is not great, but you account for that in college football. Like, that happens, and you assume that Oklahoma is going to be able to play against new guys. Um, but even if not, like Mayfield's good enough to, to raise the raise the level of play at the receiving core, and I, I struggle to find a better pair of running backs. So, um, yeah, that's what Oklahoma has rolling, and their defense is solid, uh, unless they're playing Deshaun Watson. Um, or Texas. Or Texas. Or Texas. <laughs> Strangely. Which, which, which makes the last year the stoopsiest season ever. Um, you won every game except for the time you got blown out in the playoff and the time you lost to Texas. You won, you won every game except for the two most important games. Yeah. Um, including Texas, which won five games last year. Big game, Bob. One of which was Oklahoma and one of which was Baylor when Baylor was using like a six-string wide receiver at quarterback who, couldn't, who literally couldn't throw. That dude could not throw the ball at all. Yeah. Uh, and they almost won, um, because Art Bryles is a terrible person and an offensive mastermind. Um, so, yeah, they almost lost, they lost to Texas last year. I'm going to assume they won't do that again, even though I think Charlie Strong's team will be better this year. Um, but I really like Oklahoma, and I think they have a very good shot to run the table and a very good shot to, uh, to make it to the college football playoff again. I'd buy it. I, I do. I think... I'm banking on a loss against Houston. <laughs> to, That'd be amazing. To, to derail then, Oklahoma. Then you thrust Houston into the right top in five. That. Houston is a top five team right off the bat. Well, the problem with Houston, like Houston needs to beat Oklahoma if they want to make a playoff run across the party. Oh, yeah, they need to beat to. Oklahoma, and then they need to bludgeon every other team on their schedule. Like you were doing, if Houston beats Oklahoma, if they don't, they might take some games off. They might have a weird loss like they did against UConn last year again. <laughs> and this is also hilariously appropriate that we have our Big 12 preview and we're talking about Houston already. <laughs> it's happening, Big 12. 
You're going to add someone like Houston. Just accept it. You know this. Um, if Houston beats Oklahoma, they're going to try to run up the score in every other game, and it is going to be glorious. Um, oh, especially. And then, oh, and then Justin Herman watches on. I, I actually think for Houston, it could be the worst thing they could do is beat Oklahoma because I feel like they're going to suffocate under the pressure and lose to like ECU. That's quite possible. I don't mean that they're going to blow at everyone. I just mean they're going to try to. Right. Um, I also hope that Houston goes undefeated and then wears like big 12 patches on their jerseys for the AAC <laughs> championship game. <laughs> Please, yes. That'd be so great. You know, th- th- this does feel like one of those stupid seasons already where like Houston goes unbeaten, has a win against uh, Oklahoma, and then loses to Temple in the AAC uh, championship game. Rules revenge. <laughs> he would. Um, <laughs> so I guess because we have to mention them, what is the g- ceiling for the Jim Grobe-led Baylor Bears, given everything that's that's happened? I think the ceiling's, like, incredible. I think the ceiling's great. I mean, they, on the field, like, they somehow have justified not firing anyone else on the staff, despite the fact that it sounds like plenty of people on the staff were aware of these issues. Um, and if you want to make a weird, probably ineffective Art, Gro- uh, Art, Art, Art Riles was scapegoated, uh, argument, which I don't believe in at all. Uh, it is that they haven't hired anyone else, which is, uh, they haven't fired any other coaches, which is crazy. Um, but for Grove, I mean, in pure football sense, which, again, this is all we're talking about with Baylor, because we are obviously both totally repulsed by what happened there, uh, and everything else. Um, I think their ceiling's great. I, I The question is, is Grove a, and the staff that's still in place able to kind of roll through with the team they have and just basically how great was Bryles in game. And as someone who watched that Texas game that they ended up losing, I feel very good about saying that our Bryles is an unbelievable game coach who just pulls like mad, like pulls rabbits out of his hat sometimes. So I'm not going to like bet on Baylor having this huge season and like, yeah, so Baylor, uh, they have two really good quarterbacks um, who either one would start for like 99% of the programs. And uh, if you're looking at recruiting it all this week, like they've been recruiting at a hugely high level, which is great for Texas football because now Texas is getting all those guys who had signed over to them. And Texas fans are like doing this kind of strange, like celebratory thing, even though then it kind of seems like they're celebrating like other things. It's kind of messy. Um, Not great. Really messy. Really messy and kind of bizarre and strange. I don't. I don't like totally blame Texas fans for being excited about getting good recruits, but the manner in which they got them is is inherently gross. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Baylor, they could be really, really good again. And if that's the case, then we're in for a really uh, awkward, it's gonna be awkward, a really awkward college awkward football coaches. season. Yeah, and it's one of those things, like, where I remember right after Browse was fired, uh, Seth, uh, Seth Russell posted the, a, a thing on Instagram um, where basically, like, while Browse was fired, uh, he and, like, 35 of his teammates were in – Either they were in South America somewhere, I think Brazil, and like doing mission work and like doing all this great stuff. So it, it sucks because you know that like the vast majority of that team are good guys, like any other football team. And it's just the fact that their coaches were totally unable to do the right thing with the few bad eggs that they get, which most football programs unfortunately get. Most of them handle it fairly well. Baylor handled it as, as awfully and improperly as possible. And it's now dragging down everyone else. And uh, so I feel bad, like, rooting against those kids actively because they didn't deserve it. But at the same time, like, 
Baylor being good this year just wouldn't feel like karmically right. So it's a weird balance. And unfortunately in college football, we have to do, deal with this all the time with for on various levels. Obviously this is one of the worst ones. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a pure football sense, it wouldn't shock me if Baylor's really good. It wouldn't shock me if Baylor just is a total uh, disaster this year. Uh, by their standards, that probably means like winning seven games. Um, it's just so hard to know what impact Bryles makes. And I, I would personally guess that it's pretty big just because um, his his reputation as a coach is so good. Uh, but it, it's it's a total wild card now. And that's why like Bill Conley hasn't written the Baylor preview yet. It's just it's impossible to weigh. Um, I think Grove is probably a good choice in just steering that program for a year and keeping things in track on track. He doesn't really surprise me as the choice. Um, but... You know, he's not going to go out there and redesign his offense in half a, during the middle of the game and almost beat a really talented Texas team, like with a with a wing T offense that can only run three plays. Like that's just not going to happen. So that's that's why it's, Baylor's very difficult to project for a number of reasons. I completely agree. I I've got their ceiling at around nine and three, if only because they have to replace so much on the lines. Um, I think they've lost a good amount of incoming talent. Um, and, yeah, I, I just think that every team is like a breaking point in terms of, you know, trials and tribulations and turmoil. And I, I'd be shocked if, if this season wasn't Baylor's breaking point. Um, you know, I think I think Baylor's outperformed the talent on the roster for a couple of years now. Um, and, and so this might be kind of – I mean, again, they're not going to plummet to the bottom of the league, but um, – I think nine and three sounds about right. Um, and would be you know more in line with with the, with the way that they've been recruiting, um, and especially now without Bryles. Yeah, and the bigger problem for Baylor is not like if they went nine and three this year. I think most reasonable Baylor fans would understand that that's probably okay on a, in a football sense, just based on what happened and and what a big impact this whole thing is on the program. The problem for Baylor is that their recruiting class for 2016, which was a really really good one, has been totally shredded. As it should be. Um, the fact that they took them so long to release those hits from their, LO, their LOIs is ridiculous. Um, Texas, like I said before, got a lot of those guys. One went to Auburn. Um, so they're going to have serious depth issues, uh, like we've seen from Penn State, like we've seen from another, a number of other places uh, that have had uh, major issues like this. Um, places that haven't, like Syracuse. And places that haven't, like Syracuse. Just, you know, we had G-Rob, which apparently is just as bad. So, uh, from a football sense, not a off-field sense, again. I always need to throw that in there so you don't get confused about stuff like that because, obviously, having Greg Robinson as your coach is totally preferable to everything that happened at Baylor. I would agree. Uh, so, I guess, kind of like closing out a little bit, we can spend some time on the other teams. Um, I guess if there was a team outside of those three that could win this league, is I'm down to three other teams. Um, I think it really just depends on, you know, how, how quarterbacks perform, how, how offenses respond. I think that's really the key in this entire league is just how your offense responds and how it responds to change. Uh, I think Oklahoma State, Texas, or West Virginia could all win nine games, could all challenge for the top few spots in the league. Uh, might take some some luck for things to break their way and win the, the conference, but... Um, I think as far as, you know, being competitive teams that really contend um, and, and look look pretty favorably come postseason time, I think those are probably your, your next three. 
Yeah, I think those are definitely above the uh, the rest. Um, West Virginia is really interesting because they like sneakily kind of flip the script on what you think of a Danner Holgerson team being last year, uh, where their defense was was had some really nice playmakers, uh, and their offense was kind of finding the way. Um, I wonder how they look this year with Tyler Howard, uh, who was pretty productive last season, um, and they return a, a good amount of uh, a number of pieces, and now they lose a bunch on defense. So. I don't know that they're going to be able to strike that balance and have a really special year, but they could be pretty good. Um, Oklahoma State obviously is coming off a really nice year, but they struggled against the top the top competition. I I don't think this is Texas's year, but they're recruiting really well, and I still struggle to think that Charlie Strong isn't going to find his way there. Um, he was a really good coach at Louisville. Uh, he turned around a, a pretty bad Louisville program really quickly and recruited top talent, and uh, he's been signing top ten, top fifteen classes, which. You think Texas can do a little better, and the ceiling is definitely higher than that. But it's not like the talent drop off has been huge. Like he's just finding them and putting putting those guys in the right places has been. And then obviously quarterback has been a major issue. Um, but I I think Texas will take a step forward this year and probably be like a seven or eight win team. And then next year is when you really see, you know, does Charlie Strong have it in him to uh, take this team to the next level? Um, and I think the Notre Dame game for them will be a big sign because last year obviously Notre Dame was really good and they just blew the doors off Texas. This year, Texas goes up there. Um, Notre Dame should be really good again. But uh, Texas, you know, if, if they take a step forward and they hold that to, like, a 10-point game, you know, a 10-point loss uh, against Notre Dame would probably mean you're a pretty legit team this year. Yeah, I, I would buy that. I think, you know, you didn't even realize, I think, in the moment how much uh, Mac Brown really, you know, tanked this program. Um, on his way out, um, and you know, Strong is still digging Texas out. Um, I, I think you're starting to see some players that could be All Conference. You're starting to see players that maybe in a year or two um, are going to get drafted. Um, I, I just think, you know, Strong probably deserves the time here um, b- because he he's obviously proven himself in the past. He's obviously recruiting well now. I mean, he had the talent to beat Oklahoma. He had the talent to um, you know, finish toward the middle of the Big 12 with, you know, a, a roster of guys that really still wasn't fully, not only fully developed in his image, but just fully developed and away from uh, the Mac Brown era. I think that took a lot more. I think the numbers didn't really tell us how bad things were until they got that bad um, in Texas. And I think, I think administrators are, are, are keenly aware of it. And that's why I think Brown, as long as he shows progress and, and you know, gets Texas into that 6-7 win range this year, I think that's that's probably the best-case scenario for him and for Texas. Yeah, one of the most interesting things for me and one of the most interesting storylines in college football is that, that Texas profiles like a school that should be able to buck trends and just be Alabama and beat the crap out of people playing however they want. And instead, the, the way that Texas football specifically has changed it's so spread-oriented now all across the state in terms of high school and now college with TCU uh, being a spread offense. Baylor obviously being like the, you know, their own thing, but very spread. Um, Texas Tech is a wide-open air raid. Uh, Texas A&M is now, uh, you know, a spread offense with someone. Um, Texas is finally adapting to that. They hired away two co-coordinators from Tulsa, from Phil Montgomery, who was obviously Baylor, uh, Art Bryles, offensive coordinator from for a while, for like, three or four years uh, up until 2014. So they're going after the Baylor tree now as well. Um, I don't know that it'll be exactly the same as Browse's offense, uh, 
but they're going to be one of those other teams that is finally you know starting to adapt to it, along with Syracuse and then Tulsa a year or two ago. Um, so now Texas is kind of joining of basically their whole state in running this, uh, you know, not the same as all the other schools, but they're, they're opening things up. They're not running some pro-style offense. And it'll be interesting to see if that has uh, pays big dividends since, you know, basically, I mean, spread offense is, is a Texas thing now. And it, it's kind of interesting because it, it's thought of as a, a gimmick or whatever by some people who swear by pro-style, old-school, smash-mouth football. Uh, and Texas would seem to, like, fit that bill. Uh, but instead, there you know, where some guy like where someone like Matt Brown didn't, uh, Charlie Strong is showing a willingness to take that step forward uh, when he had always been a pro style guy and make the move necessary to compete uh, at the level that he's expected to. So um, we'll see what happens. If they have another really bad year, though, it's probably it should be uh, should be it for him. So um, a lot of pressure on Charlie Strong this year. I, I tend to think that he will do enough to survive and and set himself up for a really nice 2017. Um, but it's the Big 12 is, is really wide open, and you can get lit up in that league based on the offenses they have. So um, it'll be really interesting to see what Texas does because obviously they are still one of the big names in the sport, and uh, the way they finish is going to mean a lot to the Big 12 as a whole. I would agree. Uh, I think that's a good, probably a good place to stop. Um, so yeah, I think we didn't exactly accomplish our goal of not talking about Baylor, but I feel like we talked about Baylor from an educated standpoint, from one that just wasn't, um, you know, all about the the on-field, st- well, the off-field stuff, which is the headline here. Don't get me wrong, um, but it it shouldn't. The off-field stuff should be dealt with at Baylor, and hope it doesn't at the same time detract from the good football being played at the other nine schools. And, 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 and to be honest, at Baylor, with, with the kids that, that weren't involved and, and weren't, you know, part of this this pretty awful culture that Bryles seemed to have propped up. Right. It's, you know, you don't want to throw every single person under the bus because obviously guys like Seth Russell and a lot of the other players there didn't do anything wrong. And, and who knows how much they even knew was ha- what they even knew was happening because I don't think they were... Uh, you know, in these meetings, but apparently the, the whole the fact that the coaching staffs around is is crazy. Um, so hopefully that works. I mean, things get resolved there, and people are happy with the resolutions. I wouldn't bet on it because it's college football, and things don't get wrapped up amicably like that. But uh, one can hope. Agree, agree. Um, so yeah, that's it for us. Uh, Dan, thank you as always for joining. Yes, uh, ACC week next week. Do we know anything about that league? Uh, no, we don't, but it won't be ACC week. Okay. I'm actually, I'm actually pushing that quite a bit. Uh, we are, I think, Big Ten next week. Okay. Okay. ACC is going to be a little bit closer to the season because it's and actually split up into two podcasts. Ooh. It's not as, it's not as epic as our, uh, preview every team, uh, shenanigans from a couple years ago, but... Yeah, we'll, we'll have two full ACC podcasts and a Syracuse podcast on top of that once we get to August. Sweet. Well, this has been a John and Dan have a production meeting. <laughs> Sponsored by... Could be you. Sponsored listening. Yes, if you want to uh, send us money for this, uh, feel free. Find me on Venmo. <laughs> that was Dan. I'm John. Thanks for listening to Troy Noons, an absolute podcast. Uh, don't root for the Mets and enjoy your 4th of July weekend. I wasn't kidding. Send me money.
At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.